Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. We're going to look at this this great chapter in, in Revelation. As you're turning there, I want you to think about picturing yourself at a play. You know, I'm talking about a, a play where you're, there's a, a theater there and then there's some actors on the stage. I, I want you to think about you've gathered and, and you're seated there in the audience and you're just kind of waiting for the, the play to begin, right? The, the curtains are, are, are closed so you can't see there. But then all of a sudden when everyone gets there, the, the house lights dim, the theater's dark, the music begins to play. And after a few moments then, the, the curtains open up. And you begin to see that you see the backdrop of the scene or wherever the, the play is taking place. And you see the, the set pieces there on the stage. And the, the various actors start to move about. And um, maybe you hear a song or some preliminary dialogue as you're introduced to, the, to the, the actors on the stage. But nothing really happens to begin pushing the story. And as an audience member, you're simply waiting for the conflict. Are you waiting for the, the, the drama or the tension or the problem to be solved? And that's right where we are in Revelation chapter 5 this morning. Last week we looked at Revelation chapter 4, which was really the, the set, the, the pieces on the stage. It, it laid the, the groundwork and the setting for the drama of the play. And in Revelation 4 last week we saw that Revelation 4 is all about the throne, it's about the one who was seated on the throne. It, it describes those who were around the throne. The emerald rainbow and the 24 elders on their thrones. It describes the flashes of lightning that came out of the throne. We saw the sea of glass that was before the throne. It described the, the four living creatures that were around the throne, day and night, never ceasing to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Revelation 4 describes the 24 elders who are casting their crowns before the throne on their faces, on their knees, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. All that is merely the setting, if you will. The, the opening scene to the play and the drama of Revelation chapter 5. It's, it's opening the curtains. It's revealing the set. And the drama is beginning to unfold. We've seen the actors and are about to see the drama, the difficulty in heaven. And the drama in Revelation 5 is about finding one who's worthy to open the scroll. That's the drama, the problem. We need to find one who is worthy. The title of my message this morning and my first point is the question, who is worthy? Let's start reading verse 1. And rather than reading the whole text this morning, what I want to do is, is sort, of, sort of like you would in a play. It's just, just we're going to see one verse after another after another. We're just going to play this out rather than tell you the whole story first. We're just going to let the story unfold. So verse 1, he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on back, sealed with seven seals. And at this point, the focus of the narrative changes. It changes from the throne now focuses in on the scroll, which is in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. That's the, the throne of power, the, the hand of power, if you will. And, and John noticed 
in this hand of the one seating on the throne, which, by the way, right, remember in Revelation 4, when we saw the one seating on the throne, he looked like the, the, the dazzling stones. Well, now he's anthropomorphic, and, and God on the throne looks like a man with a scroll in his hand. And, and John happens to see that there's writing on this scroll, and there's writing in front and in back, which is somewhat unusual. Normally, there's writing just on the, on the front as you wind it up. There are several reasons why you might have writing on the front and the back. Perhaps you're poor and need to write on both sides because paper in those days was very expensive. Probably not the case. God of the universe, worshipped by these seraphim, right, is not poor. Or another reason why it might be written on front and back is to make sure you get all the details in, in one document. And that's probably what was the, the case here. It was so important. Everything needed to be written on this scroll. And John spotted on this scroll were seven seals. And these seals were holding the scroll together. It was to prevent the reading of the scroll until the seals were removed and then you could read the scroll. The big question here comes, what's the scroll? What's written on it? Why does God have the scroll in His hand? Well, rather than telling you what the scroll is, I think it's best just to let the text begin to describe what the scroll is. So we see verse 2. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Right here we get the title and message, right? Who is worthy? It is the question. It is the drama. It's the problem of Revelation 5. It's again focused on the scroll. And this great angel, right? This mighty angel, this strong angel, puts forth this need. Someone needs to come. And take that scroll and to open its seals. One, one who's worthy needs to be able to do this. And at this point, right, we have more questions about this little scroll. Not only what is it and what's written on it, why is it in God's right hand, but also, like, why does this scroll need to be opened? Why does someone worthy need to open the scroll? What about God upon the throne? Can, can he not open the scroll? Does he not have the authority? Why is he waiting for someone who is worthy to open the scroll? Well, again, right, let the text describe the scroll. Verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. All of creation was searched in heaven, on earth, and even under the earth. And no one was able to open the scroll. No one was able even to look into it to see what was written. We might be curious about what's on there. Well, nobody in heaven was able to, to find out what was on there because no one was found worthy enough to do so. There was no animal worthy enough to open the scroll. There was no man or woman worthy enough to open the scroll. There was no angelic being who was worthy enough to open the scroll. Not even one of the 24 elders who were sitting on thrones around the throne were worthy to open the scroll. Not even one of those four living creatures that were around the throne, these, these strange and sovereign creatures who had six wings and spent all day, every day, in God's presence, worshiping Him for His holiness. Not even they were worthy to open the scroll. And John understood the significance of this. He began to weep. He began to weep loudly because no one was able to open the scroll. Like deep devastation in his heart. As if when a parent loses a child, just the deep heaves of grief and difficulty. 
the scroll cannot be opened. And again, right, what's the scroll that's of so much significance that God holds it in his right hand? Nobody in all of creation was able to open it. And John weeps when it's not opened. Well, we get a clue in verse 5. Verse 1 through 4, it really asked us who is worthy. And in verse 5, we find out that the lamb, the lion, is worthy. The lion is worthy. And one of the elders, verse 5, said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And it's here we begin to get a little sense of what the scroll is. It's able to be opened by the lion. Right? This strong one. Right? When we think of an, a lion, we think of the king of the forest. Right? The, the strongest one who has no enemies. But this lion here is not an animal. It's one who comes from the tribe of Judah. Right? A, a son of Abraham. A son of Isaac. A son of Jacob. But a son of Judah. And, and it's one who comes from the root of David. David was one of Judah's descendants, and so it's really the same line. And if you know your Old Testament here, you know this is describing, this is describing the Messiah in Old Testament messianic terms. Genesis 49 verse 9 describes the, the lion of Judah, right? Where, where Judah is described as a lion's cub, and the promise to him was that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, but the ruler will come from him. How appropriate that the ruler is described as a lion, and the root of David. Here comes back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, which speaks about this shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse. And it's branch, right? It's from the, the roots that will bear fruit. The rest of Isaiah chapter 11 describes the ministry of the Messiah, how the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon him, giving him wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so combining these Old Testament truths about the Messiah, John would have known that very well. It's the, the Messiah, this, this lion that has conquered. The Messiah has come and the Messiah has conquered. Now, this idea of conquering has come up quite a bit in the book of Revelation. In every single one of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, there was some sort of promise, right? To him who conquers, I will give this. Or to him who conquers, I will do this. And, and it was sort of context-specific about what was the problem or what were the issues dealing with the church at that time and the one who overcame those and, and, and was looked upon by Jesus as well and, and conquered that. They would be given some sort of blessing. This word conquering, actually, in, in the Greek word, it's called Nike. Have you heard of that before? Nike? It's, it's, the, it's the symbol that that shoe company used, that swoosh, that Nike swoosh. It's the, the overcomers, the, the one who conquers, right? That's what Nike is. It's this conquering people. And just as God promised great blessing upon all those in the churches that conquered there's also great blessing upon the Messiah who conquered. And one of the blessings of this is that as he conquered, he demonstrated himself worthy to take that scroll and to open that scroll, breaking its seven seals. It's all the reason then why John is told to weep no more. You don't need to weep. Listen, we found one who's worthy. He can come and he can take the scroll. He's worthy. The lion has conquered. Now, the identity of the scroll is coming more and more into focus, right? It has something to do with the, the conquering of the Messiah. And, and the clarity is just going to continue to increase as we just continue in the next point. The, the question is asked, who is worthy? And who's worthy? The lion is worthy. And now John turns to see this lion. And he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. 
Look at verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. So like there's the throne, right? And the four living creatures were around that and the 24 elders around there. So this lion is, is getting right in the midst of them. Actually, it's not a lion. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Now, this is unexpected. When John heard that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, had, had overcome, he had conquered, we would have expected John then to turn and to see a lion. And what did John see? He saw a lamb. It's my third point here this morning is the lamb is worthy. Now, welcome to apocalyptic literature. This is what's going to be so exciting and fun about the book of Revelation is that you've got, you've got these mixed metaphors. You've got these, these symbols. You've got these, you've got these pictures. And you've got things where it's not quite all clear, but it's speaking in pictures. In fact, note the appearance of this lamb. This lamb was standing as though it had been slain, literally having been slain. This was a lamb that was messed up and bloody pierced wounds and this lamb who was dead had been slain was alive and well though it appeared to be slaughtered all of its death wounds are still apparent apparent on him and for this lamb had seven horns it's unlike any lamb that you've ever seen any lamb i've seen right either doesn't have horns or has just two little stubs but this horn this lamb has seven horns Right? And this lamb also has seven eyes. I've never seen a lamb with seven eyes before. Dogs with two eyes. So again, how strange this lamb. And this lamb has hoofs. And with hoofs, he's able to take the scroll out of the hand who's seated on the throne. Right? So how do you, how do, how do, you do that with a hoof? You can't do That's what makes men great is that we've got opposable thumbs. No such thing with lambs. We'll enjoy the apocalyptic. This is what it's about. And of course, right, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that this lamb is the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Things begin to get clear. John the Baptist identified him in the Gospel of John as Jesus was approaching him. He, he pointed to John. John appointed Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and the Lamb of the Old Testament was the emblematic sacrifice of the one who had been placed upon the altar and dies in the place for our sins. And that's what Jesus did. He died upon the cross in our place for our sins. Jesus was the sacrificial lamb. He died in our place to take away our sin. And that's why he's seen as bloody. He's seen as having been slain. Yet death could not hold him. The grave was not strong enough to hold him down. He rose from the dead and is alive forevermore. And he's coming to rule and reign like a lion. And so here he is. This lamb is now like a, a lion. And the lion is like a, a lamb, kind of both in Jesus. If, if you remember the Old Testament, right? The, the apostles, disciples, when they thought of the Old Testament Messiah, they thought about this one coming to rule and reign. But they missed the servant song of Isaiah 53 and other passages that says that he must suffer. And both these things are, are apparently clear. And all these ideas, right, we see here in Revelation chapter 5, the, the lion's worthy to take the scroll. And he, as he takes the scroll, though, he takes it 
in the personification, if you will, of a, of a crucified lamb. But this crucified lamb is not weak and helpless like lambs typically are. He's got seven horns, symbolic of strength. He has seven eyes, symbolic of his presence on the earth. These eyes are the seven spirits of God who sent out into all the earth. Now, what, what that is, we don't know. It's probably the Holy Spirit because we've seen these seven spirits before. Probably the, the fullness of the Spirit of God. But at this point, then, the, the scroll becomes clearer and clearer. It's, its meaning is related to the power that Jesus has to do what no other creature in heaven and earth could do or ever do because He was the one who died for our sins to accomplish our redemption. And now it makes sense also why John was weeping. It's because without anyone to take the scroll from the throne, we're dead in our sins. We're under the wrath of God and without hope in this world. But when the Lamb conquers and is shown worthy to take the scroll, it's a picture that our redemption has been accomplished. It has been applied. It has been successful. And that then becomes the focus of heaven. This is my last point, but it's not going to be a short point. It's going to be a little bit longer. My fourth point is this, that the Lamb is worshipped. We take in the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. This is verse 8 each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Right? These majestic beings around the throne all fall down and worship the Lamb. They worship with their hearts, creating music in heaven. And in some sense, all, all of us believers are there as well because we see that the prayers of the saints are offered up to the Lamb as incense before Him. So it's almost like as if we have prayed, right, that, that becomes incense, which then the prayers are in the presence of God and lifted up. And the focus of the worship is on the redemption of Christ. Look at verse 9. The center of this chapter, the center of the drama, resolves everything. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. See, the reason why Jesus could take the scroll and open its seals is because He died as a ransom for our sins. He died and purchased our sins for God. And so you say, what well, this maybe perhaps is why the Father on the throne couldn't open the scroll because the scroll could only be opened by one who'd been slain and accomplished redemption, which God the Father Himself didn't do, but Jesus did for us. And not only Jesus ransomed, but He made us a kingdom and He made us to be priests, right? You can see that verse 10. And you've made them a kingdom and, and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. We reign on the earth because of what Jesus did on the cross. I want for you to notice two words of verse 9 that are super important. Those little words kind of right in the nestle in, there, in, in the middle there. It says, for God. It says, you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now for sure, right? The death of Jesus was for us. Right? We see the scripture writers always writing that. How Christ died for us. He died for our sins. And through his death, right, Jesus on our behalf reconciles us to God. But Jesus died to purchase a people for God. Yes, he died for us. 
but he also died for God. He died for God so that God might be satisfied with the sacrifice of Christ. He died to satisfy the justice of God so that he might, God might be able to punish Jesus and let us go free so that he might be just in condemning and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, apart from the death of Christ, God would have no people. So he died so that God could have a people. So he could be God to them and they could be his people. And with his death brings people, as it says, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Again, just these, these um, similar words over and over again. You're not supposed to say, okay, well, he died for every tribe. That means one thing. And then language and people. And all these mean the same thing. Fourfold repetition. Just describing all the corners of the earth. Every tribe. Every language. Every people. Every nation. See, the Messiah didn't come just for the Jews. He came for every nation. He came for all who would believe. And we who trust in Jesus this morning are part of that purchase that Jesus accomplished on the cross. He didn't die to make salvation possible. He died to secure salvation for God by purchasing us on the cross. Do you understand now why John was was weeping? If no one was able to open the scroll, we'd be dead in our sin. We'd be lost in our sin. God's kingdom would not be. And here's some great application for you this morning. Do you feel the magnitude of the sacrifice of Jesus? It was his death that made him worthy to enter into that inner circle of the throne to pass by the 24 elders, to say, excuse me, pardon me to the four living creatures and to go right up to the throne of God himself, reach out his hand and rip it almost, if you will, out of God's hand, symbolizing the purchase of the kingdom That scroll signifies all of that. Now, when we get over to chapter 6, we're going to see the the more about this this scroll and what it is. If you look in chapter 6, verse 1, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come, and I looked, and a white horse, its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out to conquering and to conquer. Right, so, so here's one bow opening up. And then, then in, in verse 3, he opened up a second seal. Another living creature said, come. And this red horse came forth. So the four horsemen of the apocalypse that we'll get at next time. But here we begin to see that it has something to do with the scroll with the, the redemption. And then it also has to do with uh, the judgment that is going to come. Because as these seals are opened up, the judgment of revelation is going to come. So you say, what is this scroll? Nancy Guthrie said it well. The scroll is God's sovereign plan for human history. Particularly, here it is, His plan for judgment and salvation. Judgment in chapter 6, salvation in chapter 5. And I believe like all of that is wrapped up in this, in this scroll. It's so, so that God's plan for human history might continue on. That, that He would redeem those who have trusted in Him. And that He would judge those who have not trusted in Him, God's kingdom then would be established. And apart from the death of Christ, and apart from taking the scroll and opening it, none of Revelation would come to be. God's kingdom would not be established. I think that's why John was weeping, because he says, it's got to go on. 
It's got to press on. We've got to get that scroll. It's got to be opened up for God's plan to continue. I just say, do you feel the importance of the centrality of the death of Christ, not only for your life, but for the future of the world? Because apart from the death of Christ, he could never redeem any. It was a death of Christ then that established Jesus as the one victor who can come and rule and reign as we think about revelation and the coming of Jesus. And it's good for us to think about what would have, what would have taken place if this scroll had not been opened, or, or more rightly, what would not have taken place if this scroll had not been opened. If this scroll had not been opened, Revelation 5, verse 9, Jesus would not have been worshipped as a worthy lamb. If this scroll had not been opened up, the martyrs of chapter 6 and verse 10 would not be vindicated. But we'll see next time that these, these, these martyrs are under the altar. They died for the name of Jesus. But if Jesus couldn't take that scroll, their justice would never be vindicated. If that scroll had never been taken from the right hand of him who was on the throne and never opened up, then the kingdom of this world would not have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ as mentioned in Revelation 11. Revelation 16 and the bowls being poured out in judgment would never happen apart from this, this scroll being opened. And the scroll was not opened. Jesus would not return. Revelation 19, verse 11, as the rider on a white horse. If this scroll had not been opened, Satan would never have been thrown into the lake of fire because the lion had to conquer. He conquered Satan. He brought people for himself and God then will condemn the wicked. There will be no new heavens and no new earth apart from this. Feel the weight of that. Like, like in Ephesians 1, it speaks about our salvation. Apart from Christ, we're dead without hope, without life in this world. But Christ Jesus makes us alive. And what is true for us individually is true for the world as well. Is apart from Christ conquering, this, this world is going to hell. But when Christ conquered... He redeemed, and he's just in his, in his condemnation. Jim Hamilton said it this way, If that scroll is not opened, the Bible's promises are not kept. And as much as John wept because the scroll was open, we should rejoice because the scroll has been opened through the sacrifice of Jesus. And we see great rejoicing here in, in heaven as a result of that. And the application is clear, right? Because the scroll is open, we need not weep anymore, but we can rejoice. In fact, that's where Revelation is headed. Revelation 21, verse 4, a verse you're probably familiar with. It says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, because Jesus was worthy to take the scroll. He earned it. And all this ought to just draw us to Jesus in thankfulness and in love and in worship of Him. In fact, that's what we see in the rest of Revelation chapter 5. We just see worship of the Lamb. We see it in chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. And Look at verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying in a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, 
To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. She wants the Lamb. Jesus takes that scroll. He's identified as the worthy one of all creation that stands above and beyond. And all of creation worships him. In fact, just notice the numbers. Did you notice that? It's big numbers. What began in chapter 4 with four living creatures around the throne and then expanded to 24 elders worshiping the Lord. Now we see in verse 12, verse 11 and 12, right, this innumerable angelic choir. In verse 11, we see the angelic worship. It's, it's here. It's many angels who are worshiping the Lamb. And then John God gives a numerical approximation. He says, myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. We know what a thousand is. Do you know what a myriad is? What's a myriad? It's 10,000. So we're talking about 10,000 times 10,000. And if you do your math, quick, 10,000 by 10,000 is... Ten thousand by ten thousand is what? A hundred million. But this is ten thousands, like maybe thirty thousand or forty thousand or fifty thousand times thirty thousand or forty thousand or fifty thousand. You're approaching a billion. Now John's point wasn't this. Like I counted them, and there was one, and there was two, and there was three, and there was four, and there's. You know how long it takes to count to a billion? If you count every number for one second, I forget what it is, but it takes like 300 years. He, 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 John didn't have that sort of time. It's an approximation, just saying it's limitless, right? And, and this is with Revelation as well. If you try to get too precise on a lot of the pictures and the numbers and the times and the dates, you're going to miss Revelation. The idea is to make an impression upon us, not to give us with exactness. It's apocalyptic literature. The lion and the lamb are to imp- give us an impression. And here likewise, right? We got, we got billions of angels worshiping the lamb. Saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. This slain, crucified lamb is the one who's worthy to receive Power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Seven attributes, again, which are synonyms. Of just, just if, if you try to dissect what's different between power and wealth and, and wisdom and might, like, it's just all together, like everything, Jesus, is worthy of that. And the size of this worship just continues in verse 13. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, all that's in heaven and all that's in earth and all that's under the earth and all that's in the sea, all of them were worshiping the Lamb as well. It's a lot of creatures, if you will. There are 8 billion people in the world, and there's many, many, many more animals beyond that. And I don't know what it means about animals worshiping the Lord in heaven. This might be Narnian, or it might be apocalyptic, or it might be um, just simply there to symbolize, symbolize the enormity of the heavenly scene. But we, we do catch this a little bit, like in Psalm 96. It says, let the, the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the, the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. Right? We, we, have, we have trees that worship the Lord that sing for joy. And here we have animals and here we have all creation. Because I think in some regards, Revelation, or Romans 8 speaks about all creation is groaning because of sin. But this is now the time where all creation is lifted right, to worship Christ 
who has redeemed us from the curse. And so I, I think that there's a sense that all of creation is under the bondage of sin. Now all of creation is rejoicing that Jesus has released the world from its bondage of sin. And just the enormity of the heavenly th- scene. I think it's supposed to make this impression upon us that this is a worship service bigger than you've ever been to before. Whatever conference you've ever been to before. With hundreds of people there. Maybe, maybe thousands of people. Maybe the biggest church you've ever been in. Thousands of people worshiping the Lord. Maybe the biggest sporting event you've ever been to. 100,000 in the Rose Bowl. This makes 100,000 in the Rose Bowl look like tiny. That's all of creation. Worshiping Jesus. And the question is, what about you? Are you going to be that, that one right of a picture was taken. You say, well, yeah, there I am, right? You blow it up, and you blow it up, and you blow it up, you blow it up, you blow it up, you get way up. There I am. Are you longing to be there? Are you longing to be, to be part of that audience that sees the, the lamb take the scroll out of God's hand on the throne and worship there? Are you today? What are singing today? Our worship today. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a few moments, what, what about worship? Do you love the worship of God? If anything, Revelation four and five are really teaching us about the the love of worship and how worship is in the heavens of the climax of the glory. And we get to relive that every Sunday as we gather together in some small measure about what heaven will be like. Well, I want to finish my message by looking at two other words. We've seen this for God word of verse 9. I want to look at these two other words. Verse 9, and they sang a new song. I want to think about those two words. What's new about this song? I think it has something to do with the redemption that Jesus accomplished. The the Old Testament saints, they could only look forward to this the day when Messiah would come and conquer and prevail and take the scroll. But now at the death of Jesus, when it is revealed that he has conquered through death, the song is new, right? Because it's not just a song about God and his power, as great as that is. It's not a song about the holiness, the creative power of God, as great as that is. This is a new song because about Jesus and the redemption that he accomplished if, I, if you look at the five anthems here in Revelation 4 and 5, I mean, if you, if you look at them on your page, like, like, like mine, like it's, it's set apart, and it's set apart, and it's set apart. And set, we got five different hymns, five different choruses, five different songs, and many of these, right, have come into our Christian worship, and, and we sing them, and rightly so. But if you look in chapter 4, it's all about God on the throne, just God the Father. Verse... Eight, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's speaking about God and His holiness and His eternality. He was, He is, He is to come. And, and then in verse 11, talking about how God created all things and His power. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. That God, by the speaking of His, his mouth, spoke the world into existence. And here, verse 11, just speaks about the creative power of God that makes Him worthy of our worship. And He is. He, he's the potter and we're the clay and we need to worship Him. But then comes this new song in verse 9. 
And this new song is now directed not to the Father on the throne, but it's directed to Jesus. Worthy are you, the, the slain lamb, to take the scroll and to open its seals. Because, this is why you're worthy, because you were slain. And because it's by your blood that you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That Jesus accomplished the redemption because you did it on the cross. And you made them a kingdom and priests and they shall reign on the earth. And here's Revelation, right? We're, we're talking about, so when did this happen? Has this happened that Jesus taken the scroll? Well, yes, he has. But yet, he hasn't made everybody a kingdom and priest or a God. They're not, we're not all reigning on the earth right now. We're not a kingdom of God yet. So there's, there's this future aspect, right? But there's, and that's how Revelation is. If you try to dice it up, you're going to mess it up. And then verse 12, this focus upon the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Straight worship to Jesus. If you ever doubted the Trinity, here it is as well. God says, I am God, there is no other. My glory I will give to no other. But he's giving a lot of glory here to Jesus. Happily. Father and the Son being worshipped. And then they're combined in verse 13. To him who sits on the throne, that's the Father, and to the Lamb, to both of them be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever just want you to see, though, that Jesus is being worshipped right along God the Father. Yet one God, two persons, but actually there's a Holy Spirit, right, in there as well, mentioned about the seven spirits. One God in three persons, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, as the Catechism says. Well, this is the new song, I believe, the, the song that is sung to Jesus, the, the song of redemption. And so for us, as we think about transitioning to the the Lord's Supper, how appropriate is it to think about this new song? Because Jesus, in the Lord's Supper, inaugurated something new. Right? Jesus transformed the Passover, not merely to celebrate Moses, but to celebrate me. Right? When he said, do this in remembrance of me, he was changing it. It was something new. The Lord's Supper was the first Lord's Supper. It was a new Lord's Supper. It was the last Passover. It was the new supper. In fact, even Jesus brought the idea of the newness of this when he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Right? That, that where he was going upon the, upon the cross and the blood that, that would be shed. It's the new covenant. He's bringing about this new covenant which brings about new worship and new songs because the Lamb is worthy of worship. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I just want you to even think this morning just about, about, first of all, the death of Christ and how good that is. And apart from Him dying on the cross, we all should be weeping heavy heaves like John did. Because apart from Jesus going to the cross, we'd be dead in our sins. But second, I also want you to think about just the newness of the new covenant. The newness of what Jesus inaugurated there by his death upon the cross and this new song we sing about the, the redemption of Jesus. So if you're visiting with us today, you're, you're welcome to celebrate the supper if you've trusted in Jesus. And if you said, he is my Lord and my life is given to him. And I profess that. And that is who Jesus is. And I'm worshiping him. Then by all means, take the bread and 
drink of the cup. But if, if you're here today and you're not a worshiper of Jesus, or you're just sort of like, I'm not sure if I believe in Jesus, then, then I would just encourage you to let the bread pass by and let the cup pass by. Because this is for believers who are joining in this worship, who are saying, worthy are you, right? There's nothing magical about the bread. There's nothing magical about the, the grape juice that we'll drink. There's nothing magical about that. But it is a sign and symbol to say, yes, I am I am trusting in Jesus for everything. I am saying that he is worthy to receive my, my whatever I have, my power, my wealth, my wisdom, my, my honor and glory and blessing is all, all mine is his. And I am giving it for him. So if that's you, then celebrate. And one of the things the Lord calls us to do is examine ourselves before we eat and drink, lest we eat or drink in an unworthy manner. It just means confess your sins to Christ who died for our sins and rejoice in that. Let me pray together, and then we'll pass out the elements we sing and contemplate the cross of Christ. Oh, Father, I thank you for the drama of redemption that comes here in Revelation 5, of this crucified lamb, risen again, alive, taking the scroll, whatever it means, but signifying that the Father's satisfied with the redemption that he accomplished that then begins the outpouring of the judgment upon the world, which for those in persecuted lands would receive so gladly and so joyfully as their blood is finally being vindicated. And as we think, O Lord, about the, the Lord's Supper, how Christ himself, before he died, inaugurated this new thing, saying that this is my body, this is my blood, eat it in remembrance of me and drink it in remembrance of me. O God, right now even we are are remembering Jesus and we are remembering what he died for upon the cross and I pray God you would help us Ephesians 4 verse 1 says to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ and, and certainly God we, we fail in many ways let's pray your grace upon us forgive us just even now I just would pray for you to examine your soul think about your own life think about your own sins just even this week just confess them to the Lord. Plead for strength to overcome. Long for worshiping Him in purity and holiness. That you will worship someday when all tears are wiped away. And you worship Him on the streets of gold, gates of pearls. And that new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from God. That God would be your God and that you would be His people. Because we proclaim, we eat this bread and drink this cup until he comes. So I encourage you to examine yourself and rejoice in the blood of Christ shed for you. In Jesus' name, amen.